Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the Jamaica retreat and about psilocybin therapy. Man, I I have to tell you, I'm having a wonderful year so far. This is going to be the last time we're talking. I have one more psychedelic episode uh, recorded, but it's not going to be out for a little while. i got to space them out a little more than I have been. I, I just, I'm in LA at the moment that I'm recording this, recorded a bunch of awesome podcasts with a ton of great guests, but I just, uh, I don't, I don't want to dwell on any one subject too much, but it doesn't matter if it's evolutionary psychology or, or, or neuroscience or any, whenever I get too many, uh, episodes in a row, the same subject matter, I just need to change it. That's just the way I've been with anything my whole life. But I do need to say that I am having right now, I'm having like a fantastic, I don't even, I don't even trust how good I feel. I just feel fantastic. I'm taking care of myself. I'm, I'm exercising. I'm working out. Who knows how much this had to do with, uh, with this retreat in Jamaica, but but it felt like uh, I, I started feeling a little better before that retreat, and then the the retreat, and since then, I have just been feeling like a completely new person. I've had plenty of mushroom experiences before, but it was just I don't know if it's a timing thing or something do to do with being in a big group with that, or just kind of having validated some of my my own. Um, experiences and realizing that I hadn't gone crazy and that some of the things that I experienced were very real and it's just amazing and I I just I'm feeling I'm feeling productive I'm feeling on top of it and creative and I don't know how long it's gonna last it's uh, I but I just feel like a new man it's terrific so I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you consider joining me May 5th to May 13th, the Myco Meditations Retreat. 
there's all sorts of people, all different age groups, all different kind of um, statuses in life, or just kind of different positions. That, you know, some retired people, some younger people, just kind of getting started. Some people in between jobs. Some people just. Uh, there for all different spiritual reasons other people just there for kicks um and that's what i liked about it and but everyone was there for kind of you know taking it seriously still having fun and everything but but uh really actually kind of going after it and and approaching it with uh as kind of a little more serious business doing some deeper inner work pretty incredible so you're going to hear all about that today. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll talk to you on the flip side. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am here uh, with my my new friend, uh, enemy for a night, and then friend again, uh, Catherine McLean. I kept on wanting to call you Kathleen because I'm putting together... I'm, right, Catherine I'm, McLean, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm putting together the two names. So I might do that again during this, uh, during this podcast. This is going to be... An interesting episode. You you asked beforehand what we're going to talk about. I already have ideas in mind, but I wanted to surprise you with them. Oh, good. We've had an interest. First off, I don't even. I don't feel like I totally understand your life path, which is really interesting to me because we have a science podcast, and you are. This is. I was at first. I was like, well, maybe we'll hide this and just talk about the research that you've done. But I find it interesting that you're kind of breaking free of academia mm-hmm. now. And uh, the more that I thought about it and the more that I got to know you, the more interesting that became to me. And I think it'll add a little uh, a little um, something different. I'm always like, sometimes I'm a little overly cautious on this show because academics that haven't don't know of it and they're considering coming on, they'll listen to a few episodes. And then if they hear someone saying that maybe academia doesn't have all of the answers some of them might be but we need to test things all of the time and freak out and right so that's why i'm always a little hesitant to even have any episodes regarding psychedelics at all uh, <laughs> because of the because of the stigma but then also anyone that has anything controversial to say about academia right well i'm that's two strikes i don't know if you have any other <laughs> strikes but <laughs> and also you yelled at me for playing board games before uh, before a trip i understand so it's a huge you exception know, you know what was funny i ended up paying for that uh, so what happened for the listeners we're at uh we're finishing we had just finished a uh psilocybin mushroom retreat in jamaica uh and we both came here as is kind of billed as a psychedelic specialist right retreat. we were the invited guests and yeah. we didn't know each other at all right right it turns out we have one extremely close friend in common yeah. who will remain nameless yeah but. yeah um, and I was, is actually, I just found out an hour ago that it was, cause I don't pay attention to anything. <laughs> I found out an hour ago, days after the retreat actually ended, that it was billed as a psychedelic specialist, uh, <laughs> retreat and that I was considered one of the specialists. Right. I was like, oh, 
I would have I would have put on my specialist character. Um, but uh, one one of the evenings we were playing uh, we were playing a, a board game that had well, it wasn't just one of the evenings. The, it was the high dose evening. Oh, People yeah, were yeah. taking monstrous uh, doses monstrous of mushrooms, doses. and then we're playing a game where there's shooting involved and stuff. All like I heard that, from so. the background was like, "And you get ten bullets, and those are your lives, and then that's it." And like it was <laughs> and then all you're like. Maybe that shouldn't get into people's non-conscious worlds before. I ended up paying for that because Why? a few days later it did end up entering my like your own trip. It did a little bit um, <laughs> when uh, one of one of the guests was. Um, I I was going through a thing throughout history and how like communicators, um, how how communicators that that kind of uh, speak out against. Um, uh, against the system and our anti-authority end up getting themselves in lots of trouble. And then one of the people that I had played a board game with at that like exact same time, and he was also going around thinking that he was God, um, uh, what came over and was like, Hey man, sorry I assassinated you. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> because there was during this board game or er, a uh, day earlier, he had, played this assassin no it was so funny because it's like my head no you know in that moment when you see yourself being yourself and you're like i can't not be me and then you also see yourself being too uptight yeah and like you can just not do this right now (laughs) but like the i just have to be me like overrode that and i I was like and also you have to understand my filter for paranoia is so clear because at Hopkins people would get paranoid at the drop of a hat. Right, so it's right, like right. any weird little thing you said before a session would like become the thing that made your life miserable as a facilitator like two hours in. Well, and then I also, as we know from the podcast, it, and you're a new mother and also pregnant again, and we've talked a lot about how uh, uh, um, hormones um, <laughs> right. cha- change change the need for security and yes. and and females and then and then so then i'm revisiting my upbringing with my mom when she was way too strict on me and i'm like i'm like catherine stop mothering me <laughs> oh you're such a nervous mom <laughs> like, lay off i'm gonna play a board game if i want to and then we made up it was it was all good that was a fun that uh, was i had a i had a wonderful uh no, was retreat fun. the whole thing was great but see this is how also mushrooms like forced you to be a grown-up because it's like in all these other circumstances socially we probably would have let that fester yeah and instead we're like well now we have to work together immediately because <laughs> yeah, people yeah. just took a bunch of mushrooms so like <laughs> right. are we cool and yeah, yeah, like, yeah. moving on yeah no i was immediately just like oh <laughs> like not it wasn't anything personal i just hate rules so much i'm <laughs> sure you're gathering that from knowing me and then immediately trying to calm myself down and then <laughs> we, made, we made up within 30 minutes but um but that fun. is so fascinating because it was like it was I'm, a, I'm trying to think about well i'm trying to think about before i was a mom it's weird i feel like my regular anxiety is much higher mm-hmm. now that I'm a mom, but my anxiety in altered states is lower in some weird way. Mm. So it's like I'm practicing thinking about all these worst case scenarios all the time. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, in this case, almost nothing that bad can happen. So it's like in contrast, I feel like I used to get more paranoid on drugs 
because I wasn't practicing being worried about all the worst case scenarios. And now I'm like, drugs are some of the safest things I could possibly do. Like, it's way safer than trying to keep my daughter alive every minute, right, you know? Right. The day-to-day of being a parent. That is, well, it's also interesting, too, when you say that, because, I mean, I'm not a parent. I would never pretend to understand what it's like. I hope to never know. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, most parents report aspects of parenting and raising children as, or at least the moments that, that keep them energized <laughs> um, as being like a very spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously given birth and watching your baby being born is, it's a cliche that this is like a very spiritual experience for people. And then also psychedelics are a spiritual experience. So, so there is a, maybe a little bit of a crossover of uh, tapping into the, whatever part of the brain that we're tapping into when we're having these yeah. kind of spiritual mystical experiences. Who well, now knows? It just, now it just makes me feel kind of nostalgic for, uh, there are moments, and my husband and I joke about this, where we'll be together and we'll be, we'll be like past self, do more drugs and enjoy it. Past <laughs> self, do more nothing and enjoy it. Like yeah. past self, don't ever work so hard because like one day you will never have more than like 10 minutes alone to do anything. Am I your past self? <laughs> <laughs> have you just been instructing me? Are you the puppeteer driving my life? Oh because my I feel like I'm... I'm- <laughs> living your past self dreams well please anyone who's listening do all of those things for me uh yeah it it uh i'm trying to grow up a little bit but but i've been i was able to loosen up a little bit on uh on this retreat I, I went through some and and that was another thing i was meant to be one of the facilitators and i've i haven't told my audience that much about it but everyone knows that i went through went to a psych ward because of psychedelics and had some interesting intense experiences mm-hmm. um that i talked about on duncan trussell's podcast a little bit and i'm, I'm and going the psychedelics to today more. right you talked with eric on psychedelics today about yeah. it yeah that was the one i heard and i remember being like this is the other specialist. I I emailed Eric and I'm like, is Shane okay? (laughs) I know. Like, is he going to be okay by December? Like I'm, I Everyone was a little worried about me. Eric was like, he's fine. He's totally fine. So yeah, Yeah, I was fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't totally know I was going to be fine, but I had, I had a feeling that I was going to be fine. And me and mushrooms go way, way back. We're old friends. So I knew they'd take care of me. Um, so how let's, uh, let's, let's go back in time, um, and figure out how the hell you ended up here in the first place. How did you get studying psychedelics? And then, uh, and then how did you eventually transition, start, <laughs> start transition? Are you like fully I'm out? I'm almost fully out. The thing is, it's like, it's, I, I kind of got pulled back in a little bit, but in probably the best possible way. Are they, is it like the mob? Like a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And it's also, it's more like the mob in the way that once you're out, if you try to say anything bad about it uh, or talk about the things that you weren't supposed to talk about, like yeah. there are all these like weird, subtle rules about like things that you only talk about within the study team, but not outside the study oh, team. You've been dropping some of that knowledge through the week. Oh, I hope you explore some of that now. I'm going right. to try to and remember so some of those things. For me, it's like 
Whereas you hate rules, I hate secrecy. I hate yeah. dishonesty and like any form of dishonesty, which doesn't mean that I'm always honest, but I see it as like human nature. That like, why are we always lying in these subtle ways to each other, to ourselves, like within institutions? I think it's one of the most dehumanizing things. Me and too. in small tribes, you couldn't lie that long until somebody found out. It's like everyone gossips and like then all of a sudden everyone knows everything about you. And that's freedom, right? Is like if you have nothing to hide, everyone knows everything. And even if like in the worst case, like if someone is getting abused or like there's a problem, everyone knows about it and then they deal with it. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like in a small tribe, some of the stuff that's going on with these politicians, they'd be gone. Yeah. They, you know, it's like they'd be dealt with or they'd be like ostracized from the tribe. And right. so I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of doing my best to like repair some of the weird things that have been done to people through institutions. And so it's like I talk about things that certainly not – I don't reveal things about, you know, study participants' identities or, like, things that – you know, confidential things that, like, I really can't talk about. But, like, general things that I saw that I don't hear being talked about, I do say them out loud. And I think that's scary to people. Mm -hmm. And, like, the I've noticed that in academia, um, people will be like, well, that's your narrative. That's not really what happened. Or like, like if I say, if it, it was tough to be a woman in a really strong, conservative male medical institution, and they'll be like, a man will be like, well, that's not what I experience. I'll be like, that's because you're a man. Like, right. consider that maybe it was different for me, and I'm not, like, fabricating this, like, weird story just for fun <laughs> now that I'm out. I've noticed a bit of that going around academia right now. <laughs> there there are these, uh, um, like, uh, red, red pill like very alpha like uh i i am way into evolutionary psychology and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of there's been a lot of justification within academia lately of i i don't know there's this push and pull of of women wanting wanting more rights and and men feeling like they're being attacked and being defensive about well, it. Well, I think that's the thing is like, so when I was at Hopkins, I have to also say, I mean, maybe I was lucky, but I didn't run into it until I was a postdoc. So I was at Dartmouth College, which is like pretty conservative, alpha male, like fraternity culture, binge drinking. But the mentor I had there was like, uh, like didn't have a discriminating bone in his body. So he considered me an equal, like, and that was the time when I didn't have any training. I had no expertise at all. And he just says like, he treated everyone like they had the equal potential that he did, even though he was way smarter, way more experienced, way more privileged. Um, same at UC Davis, like the mentors that I had treated me like an equal. And so when I got to Hopkins and I was all of a sudden like demoted to this like weird subservient role to like the men in charge, I was like, what is going on here? Like, you know, maybe it is part of my personality, but um, it was just a very different culture and which isn't to say that I didn't enjoy working with some of the men there, but it was just so striking, like how different can, it was. Can I ask you a question? Did you by chance ruin anyone's board game when you showed up <laughs> there? Yes. Because that might have been, well, that's that what, been what did it. Well, it's funny too, because it's like, I think that um, my personality doesn't back down when I like encounter those kind of Sure. Social situations, and so you're a very forthright person. That's right. I'm not. I'm not using yeah. that as an example. Just through the week, it's yeah. been. Uh, it's quite a relief for me. Well, and what my husband said when we moved back to the East Coast is, he's like, you know, we've been living in California for five years. It's a different planet, mm -hmm. and so you know, you're moving back not only to the East Coast, 
but to Baltimore, which is like a really like racially divided city in terms of wealth and poverty, it's really divided. Uh, the hospital is one of the oldest medical, if not the oldest medical institution in the country. It's all being run by men, white men, almost exclusively. Like it's just, I think uh, I used to know this number. I think it's like one in a hundred promotions to full professor are women. So it's like crazy lopsided. And he's like, and then on top of that, you're in this like really male dominated field of like studying drug addiction. Um, the women who've succeeded in that field don't want to hear the criticisms because they've kind of like, what is that whole process where you enculturate yourself into the dominant personality to survive? And so they don't want to hear that like, that they were any less than the men or that they put up with stuff that, you know, we're not putting up with now. They're like, no, I just did it on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, stop complaining. Um, but on top of that, my main mentor, Roland Griffiths, I mean, we had a really funny relationship where we had to work with each other every single day throughout the day in these like really intense, not like standoffs, but I don't think he'd ever had a student or a postdoc really challenge him on anything. I mean, maybe he had, but it's like, I was just used to working with mentors that way. Like, oh, you have an idea. I have an idea. Let's like try to find what the truth is. And sometimes that gets uncomfortable, but it's like, it's not personal. And I actually heard Scalia say that about, um, uh, what's her last name? Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that they were like really good friends, but like totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And he said, I don't attack people. I attack ideas. And so it's like, in a way, I think Roland and I were like challenging each other constantly And on top of that, I think it was really like um, shocking to him to have someone so young and female and everything acting like, oh, I I belong here. I've belonged here all along, even though I just arrived like last week. And, you know, he's been there for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think it it changed him a lot. And it changed me a lot because we had that kind of more, I don't even want to say contentious, because a lot of the time it was really productive and lovely and like, I think we had a lot in common being both, you know, meditators and obviously being both obsessed with psilocybin. Like, you know, there's like a lot of common ground there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my husband John said, you know, how many people do you think have shown up every single day and challenged Roland? Every single day they showed up to work. And he's like, what is that like for him? You know, it's like very different. And, for, and it's, to some extent, he handled it really, really well. You know, it's like... Most people would like be like, okay, she's going to be here for two years. And instead he helped get me onto faculty. So it's like he actually, I think, in a way, invited that kind of uh, challenging. Like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's like he certainly wanted, it's like better to have the hardest competitor working with you right. than not working with you. Um, so... Did we say what you actually did at Johns Hopkins yet? I think we should. So I was basically, I became an expert in clinical trials of psilocybin Mm -hmm. and other high-dose psychedelics. So basically my job was to figure out ways to fund, to get studies funded, mostly through private donors, but also some public money. So grant writing around psychedelic drugs and implementing studies that had already been funded like right before I got there. Uh, almost entirely on, you know, pretty high, well, now I have to qualify what high dose is, you know, it was like I know, <laughs> starting I know. dose down in Jamaica. We, but, we, yeah, uh, but we both had an idea of what right. a high dose was before we showed up to Jamaica. Right, so the, the idea was that at least with, maybe not so much with the psilocybin, they were pretty high doses, 
what would be considered maybe moderate doses for some kind of serious psychonauts. Mm -hmm. So like the synthetic equivalent of between three and six grams of mushrooms. That's a lot of mushrooms. Right. I used to think so. And then people down here are taking eight. I don't know. know. I mean, I'm, I'd say I'm a pretty serious psychonaut and I, I don't mess around with much higher than that. Hardly ever. I mean, usually three grams is just fine for me. I, I always, I mean, when I started, you'd get an eighth of mushrooms, that was three and a half to four grams. Right. And you'd split it two to three ways with your friends. That's how I started when I was a teenager. Right. I, it took me six, seven years of mushroom use before I was doing like five, six grams once in a great while. Right. <laughs> this is like people showing up here having never done mushrooms before and on their second go at it doing like eight grams of mushrooms i know on the last day i don't want to get too sidetracked but literally on the last day someone came up to me over like a casual lunch conversation and that was when we were going to do the day trip i was like assuming everyone was going to take a couple grams have this chill integration experience outside and someone's like so um i'd really like to talk to you i'm thinking of uh, taking 10 grams and i was like what (laughs) i thought it was a joke and i was like i can't even remain objective about that that's like ludicrous yeah and so, like, we talked that person down a little bit and was like, it's more about intention than, like, the number. But I was like, 10? Yeah. Like, that's absurd, you know? I've accidentally done more than that, but that's about <laughs> well, it. Well, no, and then there's that whole group of people, right, who say you have to take, like, 20 yeah. to 40, and I don't even... I've done that. I don't... I don't, don't recommend I don't, it? No. I do yeah. But anyway, back to Hopkins. I mean, I was also by the doing... Way, if you don't like being derailed, you came on the wrong podcast, by the way. I'm <laughs> all over fine. the place. <laughs> but uh, back to Hopkins. Thanks for pulling it back. Um, I was also doing studies of Salvinorin A, which is a smoked hallucinogen, which results in like super bizarre experiences. We were recruiting true psychonauts. Like it took them an hour often to fill out, at least an hour to fill out their drug history form. You know, it's like really thinking through like, how many times have I taken this weird drug that no one has taken once? Like, oh, that was about five or six times, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, so they had this like really serious psychedelic and drug use history. And then we were giving them, they didn't know this at the time, but this, the design was an escalating dose up until the point where they could not take anymore, literally. And mm-hmm. so every day they had to uh, inhale the drug have their experience, and then at the end of the day say, would you take the same or higher dose? And if they said yes, we kept going. And if they said no, the study ended. And everyone kept going up until a pretty high level. And um, every single person reached a 9 or 10 out of 10 in terms of most extreme experience I've ever had. And a number of people quit because they either – one guy actually told me that if he took any more, he thought he might actually die. Mm -hmm. And I was like – I really vouched for him and like – you know, the other two researchers were like, he's not going to die. You know, it's not physiologically toxic. I'm like, if this is the one guy who dies because something existential happened on Salvia and he's gone, I was like, I don't want to be in the the one in the room who like two days ago, he said he, he was going to die and then he died. Yeah. Like, I'm not fooling around with this. Um, the that- Salvia stuff, the Salvia stuff actually was probably one of, apart from all of the other reasons that I got out of academia, the Salvia stuff really freaked me out. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with this drug. And I don't, I don't feel like it's okay to just be giving it to people. Like, <laughs> I know. I won't do Salvia. And I'm a crazy person. <laughs> like, I am. Most people that I know considered me to be a very crazy person, at least in terms of my psychedelic use. And I, I like, 
stories of that stuff scare me. Do you, do you hear the stories? Did people come back with the stories of being a toy in a toy shop window? Uh, I had something similar. This one is even better. So this one woman um, had all this like, there's a Buddhist guy who talks about personal mythology and she had all this personal mythology around Easter because she was born around Easter. It was like her favorite holiday because she got all the candy and it was her birthday. And like sometimes they were the same day and like, so it was around Easter when she was taking Salvia in the study. So it was like everything was stacked against like <laughs> she was going to have this like mystical breakthrough. She actually became this like, uh, you know, those peeps, you know, those marshmallow <laughs> sticky Easter candies. That always seems to happen to people. <laughs> she became oh, a peep yeah. and she was sitting. It was even weirder. Like she uh, was sitting in a basket, an Easter basket right. on the side of the road, melting in the sun. Yeah. And then this huge giant came down and like picked her up to eat her. But she was like, that was great because she's Easter candy. And that's her whole purpose in life is to be eaten on Easter. And so in the salvia trip, she didn't know she was a human anymore. She was just always candy. Yeah. And then she would come back and like super disoriented, just like. And the weird thing about salvia is people kept having the same experience. Yeah. It would just keep like over weeks. Ugh. It would keep developing. And like this one guy kept having this mystical breakthrough. And then when he came back, he was like pissed. He's like, guys, I want to go where those people were all waiting for me, excited for me to finally show up. Like, that's it. And why do I keep showing back up in this stupid chair in a lab? And it was like, it really screwed with him. And I was like, like, thankful that we were able to support him. And I guess better that he did it with us than by himself. But it's like, is this really ethical? Like, that people like feel obliged to keep going into these spaces that are like making them feel so terrible when they come back. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I mean, for the sake of science, but it's like science hasn't always led people in the most like ethical directions, right? Right. So in contrast to salvia, psilocybin was like easy peasy, you know? It's oh, like yeah. people had these like lovely experiences. Sometimes they were challenging, but it's like no one afterward. This is actually an amazing finding. No single person has ever afterward said, um, I really wish I had never done that. It like made my life worse. Even the people who like live through what they consider hell. Everyone after the psilocybin said, like, that really changed me for the better in the long run. I think there was one, there's probably one person who had a very, like, uh, disappointing experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like I didn't get what I was looking for, mm-hmm. but not like this made my life worse. Yeah. I, I find a lot of comfort in the disappointing experiences. <laughs> right? As you heard me talking about, I was like really praising the disappointing psilocybin i started the week everyone was i was like whoa 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 expectations everybody let's lower them have a bad have a disappointing experience your first night and then feel comfortable um exploring more the next time around i i've had the same relationship with psilocybin as someone that's done dmt i'm like well i'm not sure that i'd ever recommend dmt to anybody like people ask for it because they hear me talking about it i'm like "Eh, okay go for it you know but but I know I have psilocybin def- something that I'm like, oh yeah, for right. sure. Like it helps so many people. Well, and I told you the couple times I've actually done DMT, I I'm like about to wake up in the Amazon somewhere, mm-hmm. and it's just too freaky for me to yet ex- accept that potentially I've been living an entire life within a psychedelic trip, and I'm like really in the Amazon somewhere, about to wake up out of. Yeah. This life that I think I've been living. <laughs> I know. And it's just like, I'm not there yet. I like can't wake up in the Amazon yet and have yeah. everything just become this like blip, you know, this like lovely fading memory, like everyone I've loved, all of the stupid work I've done <laughs> being a researcher, like to wake up in the middle of the jungle, just yeah. like, guys, you wouldn't, it's hard to explain. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there was, a, there was a Rick and Morty episode where they went into an arcade and and played this game where they're like, it's called like Bill or something like that. You put on the goggles and then you live this whole life of this guy named Bill who has like a wife and kids. And then at the end of the life, he dies and then the game's over. And then you're like, oh, but what about my wife and my kids? <laughs> Yeah, I, I get like some that. creepy feelings like that sometimes. Um, I do but- have to say that like my feelings about... So we're talking about paranoia a little bit in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I was way more paranoid while I was in academia mm-hmm. and working with psilocybin all the time in that really like controlled environment. And the further out I have gotten from leaving that work environment, like my paranoia has like almost dropped to nothing. And it's like when I feel it come back, I'm like, oh, I remember this used to be like a common pattern in my brain. And so that's the piece that I'm like really wondering about. Like, is there some kind of programming that I went through in order to survive in that environment? Mm. And it was like a lot about like competitiveness and like self-preservation and like always like expecting someone to take advantage of you. And like that guy is working three extra hours tonight. So I'm going to work this weekend. Just like these really subtle things that like when you leave, it's like this, the bottom drops out and you feel like, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake. Like, my life is over. People actually at Hopkins told me that. Not necessarily people on the psilocybin team, but, like, people were, like, uh, this, like, one guy was, like, well, don't become complacent. As if, like, there's no other life endeavor (laughs) that's worthwhile other than being here. And if you leave here, like, who knows what will happen to you? You'll become, like, destitute and, like... And so it was, like, strange. The, like, departure felt like death. It was, like, if you leave here, back to, like, the mob, if you leave here... You're dead to us. Like, you're gone. You're done. And so that's been very strange to, like, deal with. And I feel like I went through, like, kind of an existential crisis about six months after I left Hopkins. And so many of my friends were like, if you just go back to work, it'll go away. I'm like, but I don't want it to go away. I want to be done with this. I don't want to go back to work and then deal with it when I retire and have it be worse because I've been pre-programmed for, like, you know, another 40 years. So it's crazy to think that most people are not, like, aware of that. They're just, like living in this programmed work environment, whatever it is, academia or corporate, whatever. And I'm not talking about people who are, you know, people who have the privilege and the position that they could actually choose different, a different career, a different way of spending their time, and they're still doing it, like automatons. And I was like, I was that. And I wasn't aware that life had so many other possibilities. I was like, you know, I was climbing this one ladder and I wanted to get to the top. I mean, I think that our I think that our brains put a lot of energy into learning about our current environment and building up perceptions for ourselves, and then we have these confirmation biases and everything else that just kind of fuel that and build it. And then um, I think these inner worlds become very complex and have taken time to build these perceptions that we have, and they've built some sort of defenses for themselves when you try to have a shift of perception or forget about it. Those those uh, those ideas are kind of fighting for their lives. Those perceptions right. are, are kind of grasping on to life, whether it's just glucose feeding them or who knows how, how exactly it's, it's almost working. like uh, what's that whole theory like the selfish gene that it's just like you think that you're in charge of your life but it's really like these like super selfish parts of you that are like fighting for survival mm-hmm. no matter what happens to the whole organism yeah and like I remember when I was at Hopkins I mean like I had this well it was like a spiritually induced breakdown but I had like terrible anxiety for seven months terrible paranoia like 
I had like all the all the bad effects of like kind of being manic, but without feeling euphoric and grandiose. And it was just more like always on edge, noticing every little detail, feeling like, you know, like this was all like kind of a setup or a game. Um, a friend of mine had a heart attack, like in his 30s shortly after starting the postdoc there. Another friend of mine had like regular panic attacks. And now when I go and talk to people who are still there, I'm like, remember those like terrible, near tragic, like medical things that were happening to all of us? And they're like, nope, nope, it was fine. And I'm like, what do you mean it was fine? It wasn't fine. And I just think there's something that happens when you're like, you have, like you're saying, your brain is like making you justify a kind of work environment that's just like terrible. And then once you get out of that, it's so obvious. But if you're still in it, you defend it to the death. It's like, and so now I'm kind of curious. It's like, what are those programs that are still remaining in me that I would defend to the death that it's like are ludicrous? Like That's what <laughs> lately, I've just, and because I think it happens the other way too, I think when you say blast tons of DMT into your brain and all of a sudden have this insanely new perception, your 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 brain also is like, oh, well, let's try this new perception on for size. And then you look for things within the environment that validate this new perception or test it. You're just kind of testing these these new ideas. And I think that can lead, certainly led to me, me to some um, amount of paranoia. Lately, I've just been um, just like a little more comfortable with the idea that we're just living in a simulation of our own kind of creation <laughs> right. in a way. Uh, but yeah, the brain is weird. This is what psychedelics, I mean, this is, this is the power of psychedelics is just, you can take your average Joe, give them psilocybin, and all of a sudden they'll just start having conversations like this right. that they've never had before. And, and I do think that it's some insights into some level of neuroscience that we do not understand. We understand neurons firing and, and uh, some of some of these neural loops and how some habits are formed and right a little bit about blood flow, made. but it's like we don't really even understand the regions that are being interpreted this way or that. Right. I used to like people ask me like, what does the brain do on psilocybin? And I like almost never even answer that question anymore because I'm like, I'm going to be telling you a story right now, and it's naughty. I don't even know if it's even close to the truth. So it's like, is it better to like tell like a a, a lie that I'm pretty sure is a lie and like it's just a nice story that will like answer your question or tell you the truth and be like we don't know and like yes you'll see news articles that are like this is what psilocybin does it, decre it decreases blood flow in these brain regions that are responsible for maintaining sense of self but it's like we really don't know I mean we can see it we see that it's happening we don't know what it means uh, same with meditation and so it's like I think I've become a little bit disillusioned. Like now I see all the hype around a lot of the science that I used to do and I want to still be excited about it. But part of me is just like the amount that we don't know is huge and the amount that we do know is like tiny. And I think it people assume that we're like almost there. Like we've almost figured it all out. Right. <laughs> and it's like having been on the inside, I know that like everyone there admitted that they didn't know what was going on. And everyone had a million interpretations and ideas and like, oh, we could study that or this and like at the end of the day, there's like time for like one of the ideas to be tested and there's money for like two of the ideas to be tested. And that's what ends up determining the storyline. And so it's, it's great, but it's also like people, I think in the public arena need to understand that it's like, 
the filter on like what gets even tested at the level of what could be true is so thick that it's like the truth that we're getting out is like, you know, a drop in the bucket. Right. Yeah. Compared I mean, to personal experience, right? Because it's like each person who came here or each person who went through Hopkins has like a whole now universe of truth that they can tell. Mm-hmm. And the scientists are trying to like be like, okay, across everybody, what's like the tiniest little bit of truth that we can tell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's this idea that there's just these these gaps in knowledge that we will just continue to fill in, but we've we're all the gaps that are being filled in are the details of the stories that we are writing right. <laughs> anyway that we and a lot of times we have this base level story like for me since the age of four or five i've always just felt like life was sort of bizarre and kind of oversold and it didn't really make a lot of sense to me it was rather confusing and it seemed a lot uh to have a a lot less meaning and i and so i've always approached life from this kind of indifference um (laughs) and so it doesn't matter how many books i read uh, uh about any other all of the information still gets filtered through that same narrative and so i just come up with more and more sophisticated ideas about why none of this matters right because it was my starting position and i i wonder how how much that occurs i mean that's i mean that's the value of science is creating tests and that are falsifiable and everything else but when we're talking about the human brain it's just like that is a real grab bag of complication well right and like i think I'm trying to think about my, you know, you talk about boredom. I was bored a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was like too smart for most of my classes. I had some really good teachers who gave me tons of extra stuff to do, but mm-hmm. like um, I was bored a lot. And I was also like really curious for adventure and like discovery. And so any new thing, it was like, oh, there's something new. Mm-hmm. And so I think at different points in my life that manifested more as like classic or like risk taking. But when I really thought about it, I was like, I actually like to feel safe. It's more just like I prefer novelty. And so I'm willing to try something new, even if it's a little dangerous. But if it's something that's not new and it's just dangerous, that's not that interesting. I'm the same way, but even with stupid things, like if a, <laughs> if a candy bar says like new on it, because it's like a new kind of <laughs> Skittles or something like that, like I cannot stop myself from buying it. I know there's nothing special uh, about it. I know it's stupid and all you have to put is new on it and it's just really cues into uh, this this need inside me for novelty. Yeah. No, but I'm trying to think, I mean, going back, because it's like, why was I so into psychedelics? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I was like really into drugs at all. I mean, until I was maybe 17 or 18, I hardly ever partied. My younger sister was the one like being like, hey, maybe you have a problem. Like you need to go out more. Like all you do is study and like do sports and like you're so serious all the time. So it's like I kind of had to get like dragged against my will into the party scene And even the party scene was boring. I'm like, everything that's happening here is so fucking boring. The conversations, the like, the drugs that people are taking, all of it is just like, ugh, you know, it's so bland. But then I think there were also moments where all of a sudden I felt like free in a way that I'm like, okay, this feeling of freedom is cool. And so I think that's like where I tracked towards psychedelics was like, how can I feel more free of this feeling of like everything's the same all the time? And 
unfortunately, I mean, alcohol also does make you feel free in ways that just like don't sustain themselves. And so it's like over time, luckily, the psychedelic curve has like survived the alcohol curve, mm-hmm. thankfully, you know, but looking back, I'm like, you know, it wasn't, I think some people get into psychedelics because they love taking drugs. And I didn't, it was like, I was always looking for something new, something really like that no one was talking about that was just like totally fresh. And I mean, meditation also has shown me that in ways that I wasn't expecting. I feel like I got into meditation because it was safe and legal and people were studying that. So I actually studied meditation before I studied psilocybin. But then all of a sudden the meditation stuff started getting psychedelic. We're okay with it. Um, But the boredom piece, yeah, I'm really curious about that because that hasn't gone away. And it's like, if if I have nothing to do, I guess now I have meditation, but it's like, there's that part of me that knows I'm tricking myself. Like, you're just sitting here and meditating because you're bored. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. just be here and do yeah. nothing. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, I, I've uh, I've explored boredom, too. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, a lot of... Because I don't watch TV usually when I'm on the road or anything, and I'll mm-hmm. just sit and be bored for a very, very long time until it's like... Boredom can become kind of intense. And it will Wait, st- so we were talking about boredom earlier and I was trying to remember this quote. Do you know David Foster Wallace? No. So he's like Name one of familiar. he's like one of my kind of like gurus at a distance. So he was a creative fiction writer, but he also wrote nonfiction essays that were like hilarious. I, he's super smart um, and very, very depressed. And it's weird because it's like, how did he get so much done if he wasn't bipolar? But I really think he was just chronically depressed. And somehow through that depression, he like found this creative energy. Mm-hmm. He ended up killing himself like uh, a number of years ago. But he had these like couple um, existential moments in his books where like he would write about addiction. One of his books is Infinite Jest. And it's like how we all get addicted to something. And we have to think about like, what is it that we want to give our life to? And should it be drugs and alcohol or should it be a person? Should it be an idea? And um, he had this uh, quote where he said, uh, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. Mm-hmm. And then his other quote about boredom. So he was working on a, he was working on, so Infinite Jest was like this tome. It was super long. It's tiny print. It took like people like a year to read it unless you became addicted to the book, which was also like part of the method. And then he was working on his next crazy book when he killed himself and so his like editor and his wife put all of his like writings together to make this book and i think it's called the pale the pale king uh anyway in that he has this like line about boredom and he said the like secret to enlightenment is to find the most boring thing you can imagine and just stay with it Mm -hmm. as long as you can until you think it's going to kill you and then all of a sudden it's like you will be born into a world that's like color from black and white yeah. And so it's this really interesting, it's like, I think intellectually he understood how to get enlightened. He just couldn't like get his body to do it. And so there was that disconnect. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm very curious too, like the, that like intellectual versus like embodied enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, we've, I'm, I'm really interested in embodied um, uh, cognition in general and how we uh, attach a a lot of our emotional a a lot of our language and emotions come from these physical senses but also lately i've been anthropomorphizing a lot of our emotional states and uh because everyone just wants love all the time and that's it just it's always seemed like such wish thinking um for me and i and i was really thinking about boredom and how boredom is the great creator of all things because 
bored to be bored that means that you like fear you aren't scared you aren't nervous you simply could not be and be bored so boredom's already figured out whatever problems are <laughs> in your environment at least that you're aware of right. and and boredom's already like figured out love and it's like boredom's already figured out all of your problems and all of your goals and all of your reward system and so much so that that it is bored with it and it's like everything is just trying to catch up to boredom hmm. like boredom <laughs> there's a lot of of wisdom in right. boredom and then there's also a lot of calm in it as well mm-hmm. and uh and so so i was just kind of sinking it and the, the for the listeners n- none of that fucking means anything it's all it's all a metaphor mm-hmm. but um but it really helped me this is when we talk about what kind of things you start understanding about yourself from psychedelics and as someone that's done a number of mushrooms, I'm still learning things. And that was in that moment, uh, learning about, um, um, how I'm actually really good at navigating, um, the boredom space and, and I should stop trying to escape it, which has gotten me in lots of trouble Mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and, and how it's, it's kind of been a gift to me that I can, um, you know, Boredom is what is the fuel of the imagination in some regards. Yeah. Well, it's also funny. I mean, just like as you're talking about that, it's like finding the thing that you're good at and just doing it really well. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of thinking about where this started and the like, I was just reflecting about this to someone like what I learned on this retreat because I was like the sober one. Mm -hmm. I was like clearly the mom in every possible manifestation. (laughs) Like I had a child with me. I was, you know, like early on in pregnancy. People kept saying they could like feel the child spirit in me. And I was like, I can't even feel that. So I don't know how you're (laughs) feeling it. I mean, maybe the mushrooms are much smarter than me or you. But like, and so I think there was a part of me that's like, I never really wanted to be a mom. To be that like nervous anxiety, like all like, is everyone safe? Like, be careful, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. But finally this week, I'm like, I'm just, that's what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And like, for some reason, that seems to help some people on drug trips. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I should just like own that. And like, it won't be perfect for everyone, but like, there will be some people who are just like, man, I was just like looking for this like mom figure to kind of be hard on me, but also be like, I love you and it's fine, but like very neutral about it. And also just like, I also just want to make sure that you're safe and we're going to get through this alive. And there was like, so I think this retreat, I was like, I'm just going to own that for a while until I'm somebody else instead of like wanting to be something outside of myself or like feeling like I want to be more adventurous or more this or more that or more extroverted. It's just like, nope. I'm just going to be like the safety patrol, <laughs> the safety psychedelic patrol for a while and see how that goes. Yeah, you did a nice job of it. That was, I mean, we were, uh, we had, what was it, 25 people tripping a night or something yeah. around that? I mean, I've, I've done, I've tripped in groups that size, but not at that level of it. I, no, I mean, I'm like, I was shocked at how easy things were. Yeah. It's like how smooth, although I do think, I mean... I wonder, so, okay, I mean, obviously, Eric has a lot of trust in the woman who's basically home we're in, you know, it's her space, it's her family, it's her yard, you know, that whole area. 
And I was like, you know, maybe, I mean, if you want to talk about the puppeteer, the puppet master, maybe this matriarch is the reason people are having such good experiences. Like something about her energy or just like, you kind of know this like person is in the background. She's mysterious. You never really talk to her. Uh You You know, she's Jamaican and you're like... How does Eric even know this woman for so long? Yeah, like, what's she's the connection very there? Relaxed and comfortable. But with it like all these kind of like doing lots of drugs, right? On and she's never done them. Yeah, she has like no interest in it. She's just like entrusting Eric to do this, and so I think part of that mystery in the background, <laughs> you know, it was there was some strange, strange energy. <laughs> I, and I, man, my listeners are going to be like, "Where did our host go?" Did it, <laughs> <laughs> What do we call you, energy channeling Shane? You're like, had to accept that you were channeling energy. Yeah, I was. It was strange. There There was was some strange stuff bouncing around. It was also like I had listeners for the show coming. And so it was like I had to feel like normally you just have empathy for others and you're putting yourself in other people's shoes in those moments. But I had to, there are so many layers to it because I was putting myself in their shoes of them trying to put themselves in my shoes Mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of like, because these are, you know, people have listened to me and understand me well and were excited to hang out or whatever. But then it's, and then you're there tripping and you're like, oh, this is just another monkey that's, (laughs) that's here. And it was, there was weird, there was, and then there was people that didn't know me and just like knew I was a comedian. And then mm-hmm. because I was like getting some attention from some people, then there was like some weird jealousy and envies <laughs> energies in there that I would then have to like go in and like get them to be okay with that and let them realize that that was just coming from within them and it wasn't me and like not to get, you know, not to take it out on me. And I was, I was feeling these. Yeah. It was, it was, it was strange. It was a strange, strange, experience i i have never had trips like i uh, on mushrooms like i've had this week and i highly recommend it by the way i'm not saying that but right. it, was, it was just that's psychedelics for you oh they are a never-ending mystery that no matter how much experience i have will always throw me for a loop um well you know i mean for the for the skeptical listeners out there there are probably many of you and i used to be super skeptical and then i kind of tell people that I, Me too, by the But, way. you know, after being around so many high-dose psilocybin sessions at Hopkins, stuff started to happen, and especially the salvia, that made me be like, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. Like, I don't deserve... You know, it's like skepticism actually has like a certain air of authority, right? Like I know enough about how reality is that I can like say this is bullshit, that's bullshit, mm-hmm. that's not, you know, that's just like social manipulation or whatever. And instead I had to be like, I actually now don't know enough about reality to even be skeptical about this. Like maybe I actually have no idea what's going on. Right. And I've just been, for example, told that like energy doesn't exist. Right. And instead, I'm like feeling it and seeing it and like seeing the impacts of like shared mental space, Mm -hmm. which Buddhists call mind embracing mind. So it's like telepathy and like things that we are like that sci-fi. It's like, well, when you see it happening over and over, what are you supposed to do? Be like, no, we're still right. And I think here I'll share like one story without telling too many details about the person because I don't know if they want to, you know, talk about it. But on the very last uh, day... Um, this person had this experience of basically um, helping this person, this like archetypal woman figure, escape from a tower that she had been imprisoned in her 
for, yeah, I don't I know, long, eons or whatever. And that she was able to go free and walk away with her like child or something. And then what happened after that for this person was this huge burst of like energy and like this release from a particular part of that person's body. And then all of this personal stuff came out of that, like memories and like psychological stuff. And so, but it was, it was instigated by this woman getting out of this tower. And when the person told me that I was actually in the room with that person, a number of the sessions, either um, facilitating or like, you know, interacting with. Yeah, I know. And when this person said that, I was like, fuck, like I had that exact same experience on a Zen retreat back in May where I had all this like archetypal imagery about like either someone a female, or sometimes it was me, I couldn't always tell, being stuck in this tower. And then on the last day, literally at, at the lunch table, I had a panic attack. And I didn't know what I, what was happening. It was like all of a sudden, everything was just like rushing. And like, I had no sense of reality. I was all of a sudden really paranoid and really worried about my own safety. And the Zen teacher came up and he helped get me back into my body in kind of like a funny way, which... I don't know, it's like not worth getting into, but it's like there's a reason that Zen teachers aren't supposed to touch students because it's like if you physically touch someone in that space, it's so bizarre. It's like not at all like any other social space. But I was back in my body and then I was just like, I don't know what's happening. I'm freaking out. And he said, you're falling. And all of a sudden in that moment, I saw that I was out of the tower. The woman had gotten out of the tower. It was like enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And this like huge release of energy and I just felt like all of a sudden I was like on DMT. Mm-hmm. And I then I actually, in a weird way, like went to sleep right after lunch. And I came out of this dream where it was just like this DMT space was just like boop, 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 boop. Like I was falling out of this like totally trippy space, blissed out, just like full of love in my body. And, I, and then when he, so when he said that, I was like, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. I let that lady out of the tower back in you know yeah. May. And it might have been me. I'm not really sure. But like what happened after that was amazing. And it's like, so what is that about? Is I, there actually a lady in a tower somewhere that we're all supposed to I let know, out? Is that part I know, of the game? Like, ah! I know. How many times does she need to get let out? Like, yeah, yeah. Or did we all just play Super Mario Brothers too much as right. kids and put that in our heads? I mean, I think that stuff all the time. It's like what it, what it, I mean, I definitely felt telepathic ish like things during the experience i never thought i'd hear myself saying stuff like that but i mean it's i think it has a lot to do with uh with um i think that this supercomputer of ours that inside of our heads has this pretty incredible ability to empathize and if you i think that stored within our brains is all all of these um uh, archetypal type things and if you have if you have a uh a piece of easter candy what are they called again peeps oh yeah pe- how did i forget that i mean peeps exist somewhere in my mind right. my my brain can re- my consciousness can go find it and recruit them at any second i'm picturing mm-hmm. them right now and so they exist certainly i can have a dream when and see peeps and be eating peeps and and then and we can empathize with these bizarre we anthropomorphize animals all the time sometimes mm-hmm. we anthropomorphize i mean comics will anthropomorphize like a chair or something mm-hmm. like that and and uh and and so who knows if our if our software is able to convincingly put us in uh like shift our consciousness around to move to these other parts of the brain where we've built these things and then once it can do that then who's to say 
that there is a Shane or a Catherine anyway, or this is just an idea of a of of these different types of personalities that is in someone else's head. Um, I know what did uh, one of my teachers once, uh, Joan Halifax, she's like very poetic and she writes about altered states. She's taken tons of drugs. She was married to Stan Groff when they were doing the LSD work back in the 70s, I guess, right before everything became illegal. And now she's a Zen teacher. But uh, she said two things to me. One, I mean, one in her writing that really kind of like hit me very deeply is she said that she had this, uh, I think it was an ayahuasca experience where she all of a sudden realized that she was a dream Mm -hmm. being dreamt by the jungle Mm -hmm. and that she had never existed in any permanent sense in the way that she thought she had, that she was just this reflection of this like greater entity that was like dreaming all of existence. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, that could either like really freak you out and make you like angry about your life or be a huge relief. It's like, oh, I'm just a dream of this thing that knows more than I do and is like lush and beautiful and amazing. So I'll just let go. And the other thing is she said to me, like when I had all this paranoia and fear for like months, I finally went on a retreat with her and she was like, you know, I told her what happened. I died. And then all of a sudden I was like stuck in limbo. Like I existentially died or something, but I felt like I was trapped in this bardo for seven months. And she's like, mm-hmm, yep, like totally normal. <laughs> Just like, who cares? I've heard it before. Right. And I was like, you don't understand. I was like, I'm really scared. And she's like, so you're scared. So what? And I was like, well, I need to know what's real. You know, like this whole like, the, as if that's going to like somehow fix things. And she said, everything is fabricated mm-hmm. by mind everything yeah and when she said that and i've said i've told this story to other people and they're like that's a crazy answer i'm like so upset that you just said that that was her answer but when i heard it i all of a sudden was like if everything is fabricated by mind then there's nothing that's left out so there's nothing to be afraid of Mm -hmm. like it's all here yeah every single thing that could ever exist or be created is already here so like I like all of a sudden was like, oh, what a huge relief. Like there's no like guy behind the, the curtain waiting to to like s- jump out and scare me. There's no like secret game that's being played that's like outside of reality. Like it's all being it's all being done. Mm-hmm. And I kept like I think the fear was like I kept waiting for that like next shoe to drop. Like what's behind the scenes? What's the secret? And I was like, well, if it's all fabricated and it's all created, then there's no secret. Yeah. I mean, uh, just so my listeners know what kind of drove me crazy was not the <laughs> I, was not the idea that we're living in a simulation, which we are in one way or another. Right. We, uh, we, uh, there's no way around it. Um, but uh, I had a vision on ayahuasca of, of uh, ancestors from long ago. Kind of, uh, we we have this sophisticated. Um, software for simulating um our the the future to figuring out where you and i are gonna go and eat with your family tonight for example Mm -hmm. and we can kind of picture that and our our i know damn well that my non-conscious is doing some very serious calculating of that that my consciousness isn't really Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter enough to my consciousness to uh, to do and 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 then when I think about the incredible amount of math that our brains are doing and the calculations that it is making to navigate this world and and that perhaps I mean it might be that that our brains have already sorted out uh, way more laws of physics than we've been able to write down and articulate um, and our consciousness is just kind of trying to catch up to that and mm-hmm. so. 
That being said, these ideas that we imagine as we imagine the future, then we work toward the future, and some of these uh, some of these projections might might go out for a very long ways. And then you realize when something can go wrong, and so I had this this idea of of how we've like gotten away from sitting around the campfire sharing hashing things out with one another, and this is this ability of shifting the future and how everything in the past has in one way or another led to this moment and that's for better or worse it's not necessarily a bad thing and then i just got uh so paranoid with any choice mm. that i would make of the butterfly effect that would yeah. eventually happen of of if if yeah. you if, say say you do something really good in advance some law of physics that makes a bigger bomb that <laughs> that gets used and destroys everything and you had no idea and you had the best conscious intentions that's what drove me out of my mind it wasn't the idea mm. that it it was the so the, the magnitude thought, yeah, uh, of yeah no there's um so the the zen teacher that i was working with for the last couple of years during my first pregnancy and then recently back in may um he talks a lot about this woman peace pilgrim who was just this like most people have never heard of her. She's just kind of some like random American woman who started having like mystical union experiences with God and slowly, slowly, slowly let go of everything in her life except for like a single outfit and some walking shoes. And then she would just walk everywhere and just rely on complete chance and the generosity of strangers to to feed her, move her around, clothe, you know, everything that she needed. And she said, if you understood the power of a single thought, you would never think another bad thought in your life. And I think that's kind of, that's what I'm hearing when you're saying that is like, there was one moment, it was actually on cannabis. It was like, I ate a brownie at some festival and like eight hours later, I'm like in my tent freaking out that like every bad thing that I'm thinking will become reality. And I just had to like really do everything I could to stop thinking because I was like, the thoughts are creating reality right and on the one level that's delusional and it's like way too self-absorbed to imagine that your only your thoughts are creating reality but i do think it's true that thoughts create reality and so yeah. it's more just like the general landscape of thought is creating reality so it's like how much time and energy do we spend imagining terrible realities right and it's like are we actually creating that yeah and it's like you- we should fucking stop that now like that's really how things are going. I mean, if you are uh, in a country and you're worried, if, if you're, say, in the U.S. and then you're worried about Russia or North Korea or something and you're worried about bombs, then then you, you're like, what if we get bombed? We need to have these defenses to stop bombs and we need more sophisticated bombs. And then it ends up, because you've just justified it on, on some, you know, self-defense uh, uh, logic that that you need to have uh, just if you have the bigger bomb it will stop and now now you're going off and making that thing that will eventually end the world um and yeah went down that rabbit hole recently and that is i mean that's what the the buddha i mean buddhists believe that your thoughts manifest reality mm. and it's just all of it is connected so it's not like any one person is doing it Right. But it's like, we're all doing it. So that's why, I mean, you were actually, I was like kind of uh, grinning to myself. You had this one uh, comedic part of your serious talk where you were talking about the like guys who just go and meditate for 60 years by themselves because <laughs> yeah, they yeah. can't handle being around people. Yeah. 
But it's like it's it's challenged my notion of what that is because they believe that actually their quality of mind is impacting the whole world. Right. So it's like if they have a single negative thought towards someone that has huge karmic implications. So better to mm. just like go away from everybody and never think ah, a bad bad thought than to have any karmic garbage being contributed. Well, now so, I'm an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Who's right though? I don't yeah. know, but it's like I actually found myself at some point on the really high dose night. Um I forget. So you were actually in the space I was in. So mm-hmm. we didn't have an actual like observe observational perspective on what was happening in the other space. But just very briefly, what was going on in the other space seemed like intense. There mm-hmm. were a couple of people too, maybe who were having a really intense experience, not necessarily bad, but it required a certain kind of attention. And our space was the chill, quiet space, also intense in a way, but it's like less, less to manage. You know, there wasn't a lot physically going on. And a couple of times I found myself saying to people who either said they're bored, they want to go outside or they just want to go outside because they want to go outside. You know, whatever these reasons are, the ego comes up with to like not stay in one place. Right. And I would just say like, there's some stuff going on and I really need you to stay here. And I was like, if you need motivation, I was like, if you can actually generate the most compassionate state of mind possible, that will actually help whatever someone is going through in that other space. And so it's like, what is that? Did I just plant a really strong placebo seed? You know, it's like you can generate compassion for someone at a distance. But a number of people said that they felt like their state of mind was actually helping other people who are having a more difficult experience. And mm-hmm. so it's like, what do we actually know about consciousness? It's like, we imagine that there's physical space between us, but like, what if our minds are all like connected in a very like real way mm-hmm. and my state of mind does impact someone else's state of mind, mm-hmm. even physically at a distance, you know, maybe even all the way around the world. And maybe in like another 50 years, we'll look back and be like, oh, those skeptical scientists were so quaint. You know, they thought that brains were separate physical things that weren't connected. Yeah. I keep on having weird stuff like that happen all the time. (laughs) I mean, it's just just been nonstop. I'll think about how I accidentally shattered time. What happened at the end of the high dose night? Remember, we're all sitting around in that funny little like eating area, which is like a little spooky right it's like a sp- it's kind of a spooky yeah. vibe to end your trip night right yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is like now you will sit and eat this <laughs> very uh full meal <laughs> of like right. chicken or fish or like you'll eat your whole plate and then go to bed um but you had people doing the vr thing mm-hmm. the virtual reality goggles and we were having that conversation about time yeah and i said there is no more time like and i meant it like it's urgent. Like we have to do something now. And you were like, yeah, like time's done. It's exhausted. It's not going to do its job. I got a very strong message. Like I had a very long conversation with it. But so as we were talking about time, this woman who had the VR goggles on had this like brilliant white light, like flash into her vision. And it was like this insight moment. And she came running over. She's like, what are you guys talking about? We're like, Oh, just the end of time. (laughs) Like no big deal. (laughs) So it's like, she got the visual experience of like the end of time as we were just saying it. I know. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's weird. Well, so if this is piqued anyone's interest, they should totally take, buy a plane trip to Jamaica and I see know. if the world gets super weird for a week. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely got weird for me. I definitely, I mean, it's so funny though. It's like I already had a conversation with my dad back home. He's a lawyer. It's like his job to be skeptical. Right. It's his job to like distrust job to be the, skeptical. Right? the truth that people tell is not the whole truth. And he's just like, well, I feel that great when I go to Bermuda. Like, you could just give me nothing and I would feel fantastic, like cured of depression, like ready to become a new person. I was like,
like, well, maybe that's why we should study what's going on down here. Because mm-hmm. if a single trip to Jamaica plus mushrooms cures lifetime depression, then we should be investing in, in trips to Jamaica yeah. instead of like antidepressants. Right. Like right. if the if the like placebo effect of vacation plus drugs works so much better than any other setting plus drugs, well, then we got to figure out how to pay for everyone to have a vacation once in their life. It's yeah. like, hey, I have a crazy idea. We're going to pay for everyone to take a vacation and take mushrooms once. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have world peace. Yeah. yeah. Not worth it. We should not even see if I that know. works. So, I mean, say, let's say it's a, a $5,000 experience because we're going to give people the premium package right. or whatever. I mean, that compared... That's like a day in an ICU. Not yeah. even. It's like 10000 to be in a hospital for a day. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. It's... Uh, uh, so we might be, and, and now recording this for the listeners, you can feel free to write me on the Here We Are podcast and let me gauge your interest. We're thinking about doing a retreat for only Here We Are podcast listeners so we can get a bunch of this army of skeptics that ah. I have built to <laughs> test my own <laughs> not-so-skeptical ideas about what's uh, what's happening because there's some strange... Uh, Strange things happening. Well, didn't Eric say, I mean, so I don't know what the rate is at Hopkins. So most of the, a lot of the people, maybe like half of the people who come here are atheist or just Mm. like don't have a specific belief in anything um, and still have amazing experiences. You know, maybe they interpret it differently than people at Hopkins who are mostly spiritual, but not religious, Yeah, which is like the biggest growing segment of religious life in America is like spiritual but not religious like all the other religions are losing out to this just like general vague spirituality that makes people feel better yeah and so it's like the people at Hopkins all actually had strong beliefs in something beyond themselves and if people down here don't and they're still having transformative experiences it's like yeah you know it's like we weren't going out of our way at Hopkins to recruit atheists right we're going out of our way to recruit like religious professionals and meditators. And it's like, no, the first thing we should have done is get all the atheists in the room and see if they had mystical experiences and what they said about that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just, because of my hardcore, like atheist convictions, I, I think of weird, that's what I've realized recently as I like think of weirder rationales for it than just being like, well, that was God. Like, I'm like, Oh, it's time travel. And here's how it's like, well, either way we're, talking about some some right. seemingly absurd ideas compared to what we what we know what science understands uh about things yeah i mean it's it's uh it's it's weird um so before we finish do you want to hear what really led me away from academia i would love to yeah i can tell the yeah, super yeah. short version and every sure, time i every yeah. time i tell this story um i want to kind of give like a very humorous spin on it for right now but every time i tell it there's like always someone who like starts crying because it's like kind of sounds like a bummer but basically i went through this like uh terrible period of like mental unhealth Mm -hmm. basically just like paranoid anxiety ridden overworked not knowing what was real um did this zen retreat with joan halifax and some crazy things she said to me just really worked and all of a sudden i was healthy again and then a month and a half later my sister died of breast cancer Mm But when I was going through that whole process, I didn't know she was even getting sick. You know, it's like she had been sick and she was in remission. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, I actually had a lot of, in addition to anxiety, I actually had a lot of weird lung problems during that period of time, which made me think that there was something really wrong with me Mm -hmm. that the doctors couldn't find. So it was like contributing to my delusion is like, why won't people just admit that I'm dying and like, tell me the truth? Like, so I was like driving myself crazy. And then 
turns out, you know, eight months later, my sister's actually in the hospital with lung metastases from breast cancer, suffering from all of the same issues that I had been suffering from, like actual lung pain, unable to breathe, like terrible anxiety, thinking she's going to die, knowing she's going to die. So all of a sudden in that moment, I was like, holy fuck. Like my body and reality was preparing me for my sister's death. How did they know? Who knew? How did I know that she was going to die? And that like seven months of like super intense, terrible training was going to allow me to sit for her this way. And so that upended everything I believed about time. Like now I, I don't believe that like future is unknown and ahead of us. Like I think there's like time is flowing in all sorts of different directions. I think that, feeding yeah. back from the future into our so. current experience. Yeah. Um, some of the things that she went through in the hospital defied any scientific training I have. Mm-hmm. Um, she certainly had a psychedelic experience, but was not on drugs other than morphine. Um, we had telepathy in the hospital that like, you know, it's not like we were super close as sisters. We didn't spend that much time together physically as adults. So it's like, it wasn't, you know, maybe we had like child versions of our brain patterns that were activating in tandem, but like not the adult ones. And at every single moment in the hospital, I knew things that no one else seemed to be aware of. Like that literally she was going to die very quickly, even though everyone was saying she had months. Um, so many weird things that I also knew not to be afraid because I knew that eventually like she was going to die and it was going to be fine. And in so many strange ways, now it's been five years, um, my life and certainly my daughter's life. I don't know that I would have had a child if not for leaving academia and actually like finding myself again and being able to get pregnant. So much about my family's lives have improved in ways that you would like feel terrible saying like this person died and our lives got better. And so it's like, it's all these paradoxes where I was just forced to be like, I can't keep living this life of workaholism and dedication to this framework that I don't even believe anymore. And in some like crazy way, I felt like my sister like sacrificed her life to be like, wake the fuck up. Stop wasting your time. It could be over in six weeks. And so it was just this like, the most spiritual thing that's ever happened to me and also still the thing that like, haunts me is like mm-hmm. what was her life what was my life with her like this like ultimate like koan of just like how did she die in this way and how did it completely change my life for the better in so many you know unanticipated ways um and so i don't know she shows up for me on mushrooms you know she's definitely there as like this kind of ancestor guru is that my like mental projection or is it real she's certainly so- shown up in ways that i didn't anticipate that i'm like man, maybe maybe we do exist in some form after we physically die that we're all going to get to find out. But this is data going back into a simulation. We're figuring out ways of tapping into the system that's getting right. that information, and then somehow it's being passed back through, and, and the, the main frame of this uh, is independent of time because it created the, this uh, direction of time for us, but we're able to tap into this thing that knows, like your... Like, uh, you you are a part of everything and everything that there has ever been but you weren't before you're born but as soon as you're born you were everything so you were always a part of everything (laughs) even before you're born and it's like these weird paradoxical also the the creepy thing is when she and maybe you felt this when you were actually in the psych ward uh 
there were moments in the hospital hospital where I was like, we've done this before. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt like we were really practiced at being sisters and her dying and then me using her death to like tell this amazing story to like change the world. Mm-hmm. Like, was that delusional? Was it just like my grandiose projection? Cause like my sister was dying and it was fucking terrible and I couldn't handle it other than to create, you know, this like spiritual interpretation out of it. But it really felt like groundhog day. Like we've done this before. We're experts at this. This is the role that we play to save the planet. And I it's felt like that a week ago, <laughs> <laughs> not just in the psych ward, which I also felt it, but I <laughs> yeah. felt that a week ago in Jamaica. Yeah, I mean, granted, I was on drugs, but still. So let's figure out how to save this fucking planet, because <laughs> I, I don't think we've got another shot. It's yeah. like, <laughs> we either figure out Earth, I don't think we get another planet to try out. Like, yeah. if we fail at Earth, I don't think the simulation's going to be like, okay, well, you failed at Paradise, so we're going to give you well, another. Well, I think that's why it's sending messages back from the future, because yeah. it knows the many ways in which we failed. It's pushing that back a little bit. Hmm guiding us it already knows how to end <laughs> right it already it knows ends. so it's, it's like okay 99.9 percent of the simulations end in this catastrophe yeah. we are hoping that someone gets the message to yeah. be that 0.1 percent that's not a catastrophe <laughs> yeah go back and put a little sign in a fork in a road in someone's life and see if that has some sort of butterfly effect that that yeah. fixes it uh who knows that is <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's the most uh mystical (laughs) that i've ever been on this podcast so that was wonderful i enjoyed that and i'm glad that i got some of that pent-up stuff out too yeah and i uh i look forward it's my husband and my daughter both love games so i look forward (laughs) to being more open to playing more games you don't have to say that no i really right this is right and you're wrong we this is this is part of I used to I used to say that I didn't like playing games because life itself was a game that I was kind of fed up with. Yeah. But maybe I just need to embrace the gameness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then that will be a new path toward freedom. Right. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Well, I very much appreciate you uh well getting to know you better and thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, um one little thing. Uh, oh, you, you, what you get? You organized some charity thing recently, right? Or like, oh yeah. So, like um, that? when I got when about? Eric invited me down here, I had been in touch with a friend of mine in New York who was actually from Jamaica originally, and I didn't know all the details of his story, but I knew that he was very devoted to becoming more um, trained in shamanic ceremony. Um, I knew that he was, you know, struggling financially, struggling like health wise without getting into details. And I was like, man, I think he has to go to Jamaica. And it just became this like obsession. So then when I presented it to him, he like started crying and he's like, you don't know what that would mean. I haven't seen my brother in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, he was deported. Um, You know, I can't go back to Jamaica very easily. And he's been very public about this. Like he said, you know, I'm gay Mm -hmm. and it's really dangerous to be a gay person here in Jamaica. The homophobia is like fatal, you know, at Mm -hmm. fatal levels for many people. And he said, but this would be the perfect reason. And it would allow me to go back and like heal a lot of those wounds. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't think it was chance, you know, this, this other person came into my life who was very dedicated to funding, um, mostly Buddhist endeavors, but he himself was very dedicated to his mushroom experiences through the Mazatec tradition, like a very religious tradition. And I met him in New York one weird breakfast. And he said, 
would you want to go to Mexico to take mushrooms with these grandmothers? And I was like, nope, but I want to send this guy to Jamaica. And it happened. Mm. It's like he paid, you know, his whole way. And so I don't think any of that is a coincidence. I When he was here, it was like the powers were strong in him. There was weird synchronicities. And he was, I was fighting battles in my mind for the sake of humanity so we don't blow all of ourselves up and all of the disappointment and tapping into i've been tapping into the ego of humanity and the need for more and how dangerous it is and that we're humanity spreading itself too thin and when it was getting to be overwhelming he always had this song that was right then Mm -hmm. articulating exactly what I was thinking, but putting it all at ease and, and it was like guiding me in the right direction with my thought. It was bizarre. The yeah. whole retreat was so weird, so bizarre because I've only ever done high doses like that by myself. Um, and yeah, and I, I think in, in particular, it it's like sometimes I think philanthropy, it's like you go searching for the good deed to do. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, every, you know, courageous act of like giving whether i've been the recipient of it which i have been in these like totally strange and crazy ways basically every time i took uh more and more steps into the unknown people would come out of the woodwork and say can i support you can i help you like in this endeavor and the way that this came through for um this guy who was here this week being you know on full scholarship like i think there's a way of surrendering your life to the greater good mm-hmm. that like allows this like giving cycle to perpetuate itself and i it sounds totally woo woo like as i'm saying it as these words yeah, are coming out of my mouth but I it's know. like i know what you mean though i think there's something about this like this energy cycle of like giving yeah. away and like not caring about yourself that actually allows the healing to happen. Yeah. And so it's like, that's another thing is like, if you're not into mushrooms, you don't want to go to Jamaica, but you know, someone who could really benefit, like think about the people who could never afford to go to Jamaica. You know, uh, maybe they have been in a certain, like either, um, minority status or health status or whatever that it's like, this would literally be the trip of a lifetime. And like, think about what, like you said, three or 4,000 bucks is to you. And then think about what it might be for that person and venture to believe that sending that person here might change your life in a way that like you will like, you could never imagine. Yeah. And so I don't know. That's part of the mystery. It's like, if we just time that I gave into monetizing this podcast, which I'd been giving away for years (laughs) and has spread me thin, my brain just broke into pieces and it was like all of it. It was, yeah. So I don't know. There's something weird to it yeah uh sorry to cut you off no well it's fascinating i mean i feel like i also have to plug myself like yeah because you were saying about the the monetizing thing like i think we've started to see these like nefarious factors or forces at work within the psychedelic Mm -hmm. community like people who don't have a lot of training or don't have what i consider to even even be like basic ethics when it comes to not taking advantage of people They're like coming in with these like flashy websites. Mm -hmm. All the talk is down. You know, they listen to all the talks that are out there and then just kind of like copy the words, Mm -hmm. copy the framework. And so finally, I like got my own website because I was like, I have to be a voice crying out in this wilderness, you know, just like psychedelics. And so Catherine McLean dot org. Of course. Anything else like Twitter or anything else? I don't do Twitter, but at least this website is a repository for Catherine's version of the universe, which I happen to think I've worked a little bit on Mm -hmm. making it a little bit more kind, a little bit more compassionate. And hopefully, you know, something that is there will benefit 
people beyond me. Yeah, and I encourage everyone to be really skeptical, too, because I, I think that there's a ton of charlatans within the community. Mm-hmm. And, and then I also, I mean, as we explore on this podcast, self-deception's a motherfucker. And sometimes we don't even know when we're lying to ourselves, which makes us better liars to others. And, you know, so <laughs> it, it's just like, it's, it's impossible to wrap our head around exactly what is the right direction um, in all life. But I definitely encourage people to at least dabble in different... Um, different experience learning about different experiences not necessarily dabbling in every single thing but man this is this is this was this whole experience was way more than what i had already downplayed in my mind what i uh, of what i thought was going to happen (laughs) so um so yeah well thank you guys for listening and um i don't know maybe we're gonna put together a, a total uh here we are uh jamaican uh retreat where we can get a bunch of science scientific minded people and um and then i'll uh do telepathy on you and (laughs) and maybe you can explain to me how it works um after after you feel it happen um but all of you that uh uh, that tune in each week and are open-minded and uh and are such curious people you're so wonderful and i hope you have the best week talk to you next week thank you for listening All right, everybody, if you're interested in joining me as special, here we are, Jamaica trip to do mushrooms together, May 5th to 13th. I think it's going to be a magical time, uh, get a bunch of awesome, uh, you know, all my listeners are interested in the sorts of things that I'm interested in. It's awesome when I get to meet you guys, because you guys already know every damn thing about me, so I don't need to, like... I, I don't need to wonder about what I'm saying and if my sensibilities are okay. You already know everything about me. So we're just off and running and having deep conversations. I love it. Um, so I hope you consider joining me. Again, the mushrooms and all that, that, those are free. It's just if you want to take a trip to Jamaica and then also, in addition, get all of these awesome uh, experiences... It's it's fantastic. It's as far as I know the only place in the world uh, where you can go and have a legal psilocybin retreat. So check it out. Um, and next week on the program, super my very first guest Marty Hazelton is joining me again uh, on the show to talk about her brand new book, Hormonal. Check it out. You can pre-order it. Today, have it in time for Valentine's Day-ish. Uh, I think it comes out February 13th, but I don't know if it gets mailed. I don't know how things like that work, but I think you can have it to your door right before Valentine's Day. The Hidden Intelligence of Hormones. How they drive desire, shape relationships, influence our choices, and make us wiser. This is the sort of thing the podcast is all about. There's a reason why she is my first guest. This is the sort of thing that uh, you guys write and respond uh, really positively to. And uh, and next week's episode, so wonderful uh, to be three and a half years later, have have uh, that much more experience and everything, and, and the, just the conversation was fantastic. So... Uh, hope you uh, hope you enjoy that. Tune in. Hope you've been enjoying the Laughable app. 
and uh, hope to see you in Jamaica. Go to mycomeditations.com to learn more. Uh, spaces are going to fill up fast, I think, and I don't want to keep on plugging this sucker over and over again. I'd love it if you uh, if you're interested to uh, to take a look into it sooner rather than later, so that we don't uh, so that you don't miss out, and so that we can um, make accommodations. Because depending on how many people there are, depends on kind of how we're going to run the thing. So um, yeah, that would be terrific. Sooner rather than later would be wonderful. Um, sound like a fun time? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a pretty... It seems like uh, not a lot of podcast hosts are offering uh, uh, something like this that you can do. So I think people are going to be interested. Um, I hope that you are. But anyway, those of you that listen all the way to the end... Uh, You are, of course, my favorite, and I will talk with all you guys next week. Oh my goodness, almost forgot. Outro music by Coup de Grasse. Check out the Jimmy Fro Indie Music Podcast to discover more music. And Ramin Nazer has a new Kickstarter for his brand new book out. Please check that out. Go to RaminNazer.com. There's not a whole lot of time left in the Kickstarter Support my my friends, support the people putting this show together. That would be much appreciated. And you guys are awesome.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my God. he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. <laughs> 